This podcast is in no way affiliated with the Stars Production or Diana Gabaldone. All views expressed are solely our own. Welcome to the Outlander Podcast, where the men are kilted, the women are winsome, and the whiskey is neat. Welcome to episode 195 of the Outlander Podcast. I'm Ginger. And I'm Summer, and we are in love with all things Outlander. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. So not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know just where your food comes from. One of the things I love about Blue Apron is uh, their impact on community. Uh, I love that their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. If you've ever been to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, they have those little cards that tells you what fish are safe to fish and which fish are perhaps over overfished and um, underpopulated. So being a partnership with that seafood watch uh, with the Monterey Bay Aquarium means that you're not going to be getting any any fish that's being overfished. So you know that it's a sustained and something that, they, that can be continued and not hurt the environment. Also, their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. So we have great ingredients. We have responsible farming, responsible sourcing of ingredients, and... Let's just face it, it's pretty easy to do. Now, it may take a little bit of time, but it's very easy to follow the step-by-step instructions. So all of this together, we invite you to check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash outlander. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash outlander. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So it's good to talk to you again, Summer. What have we... I want to say, what have we we done for you lately? But that's wrong. Uh, No, it's not right. But this would be the great time to move into a segment I like to call announcements this week because we have some (laughs) we have there's actually two that i know of one that's like show related which we usually concentrate on and one that's i mean you could say personal but it's actually (laughs) i don't know i want to say community but it is we hope we hope that you're part of this announcement so um why don't you start why don't you start us all right casting announcement this week I know it would seem like this would be a weird time to hear casting because, you know, we just still don't even have our season three airing yet. However, they are announcing a casting for season four. And that, I know, season four. And they have cast for season four. And it is the pivotal role of Rolo, who is the, how would you describe Rolo? Sidekick. The sidekick. Sidekick. Young Ian's sidekick. Doesn't he win him in a bet? Is that spoiler? Yes. Yes. I'm going to take that back. I don't you didn't hear that. Oh, okay. <laughs> don't, don't make it go away. Just you didn't hear that. They have cast two puppies who were born approximately eight weeks ago. They are northern Inuit puppies, and they will be uh, sharing the role of Rolo, the wolf hybrid. So what I didn't know is that when you cast dogs, like you do little baby humans, you have to cast twins. You know, they don't always, they don't always, but I think because of how pivotal the character is and how long lasting the character is. And also let's talk, let's not, let's, let's also be serious about this. Not all dogs 
are great. Are made for show business. Not all. No, it's not even that. But not all dogs respond well That's to, I mean, to not training. Not all dogs are and great not all on, dogs, on camera. Exactly. So maybe they're hedging their bets by casting two. So odds are one of them will be good for it. So or they might use them both. I mean, they are they they did cast them both. So I guess we'll have to see. So that was so cute when I saw that picture because I I was away from my from social media and then when I saw it I was like no way this is the funniest thing ever and the only thing that will make me happier I mean I will probably not cry like but cry like happy like oh, oh is if and when wait is ad soap is ad so season four as well um ad so is either season four or season five he's definitely ridge I think it's four because isn't it when he gets a, he finds a kitten buys a kitten gets a kitten on their way up to the ridge because they're on a horse they're on horses when she he gives he gives her aso. Okay, I just so anyway, remember him disappearing and showing up with a kitten in his pocket. Yes, but they're still on horseback, like on their way to to the ridges places or whatever. So yeah, but anyway, so I hope. Oh my gosh, please keep aso, please. It's like the one cat. It's the one cat. It's like, okay, you didn't give us Brianna. You didn't give Americans Brianna. I'm not upset. I like Sophie Skelton. I have no problem with her. I think her American accent is not bad at all. But it was and is, through all the books, the only major, forget man or woman, it's the only major role of an American in the entire series, through a books that's consistently with us, that we develop with. I mean, other than Abernathy, but he's just not around that much, and we don't really see him much, and he doesn't develop much. So, you took away our Brianna. Okay, you did it. That's fine. I'm very happy with the result. It's all good. You're giving us Rolo. Woohoo! Please don't take away my ad. So I don't care where the cat's from. I am not a speciesist or a whatever when it comes to cats. Whatever. I just want a cat. I'm a cat person. Please. You took away our American, our token American. Give us ad. So she doesn't even have to be American. Or it could be a he. I don't care what, what sex the cat is. Okay. That's my little plea. But so yay, Rolos. Oh, that makes me so happy. Rolos. Now I'm thinking about candy. But there are two of them. That's why I said Rolos. <laughs> that's funny. That's candy. So it's great. Okay. So is that the only thing we wanted to kind of say? I mean, we had an announcement this last week. Just a little one. I think we just woke up on Monday and thought, oh, I think I want to do something. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly how it happened. No, my four gray hairs tell me otherwise. <laughs> only four? Lucky. No, I don't even think I have one. At least not oh, now. You're I, making this worse, Ginger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, no. It was a. I want to say it was overly stressful. Let's just say if you've never planned a trip for 50 people, <laughs> and this is without the people, basically planning two itineraries. Oh shoot, we haven't given the announcement yet. Please Are tell you us, Summer. It? No, no, don't put you. this on me. Nope. <laughs> so Summer and I, we've been working for months with a. Scotland-based tour guide and a Scotland-based tour operator to develop two trips, two tours. Tour one, tour two, we're kind of calling them, uh, to Scotland in May of 2018. And it will be a mixture of, actually not a mixture, it'll, it'll be a nice balance of um, actually mostly filming locations. That's These trips are for the Outlander for Outlander fans, quite frankly. And um, we have a few surprises along the way. And it's just, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. They're led, fully guided. And there are two of them. One is more of a standard. So it's three star accommodation, but a lot of filming sites put into that time. And a little surprise at the end. But if you go to the site, 
you will read about it. So it's not that much of a surprise. And the other one is a little bit longer. It's about uh, no nine-ish, I think nine or 10 days. And it is our luxury tour, which is actually 25% booked. So let's get moving, you guys. There, there are plenty of spots left, but um, in less than 24 hours, we were 25% booked or just over 24 hours. Anyway, and the luxury one is four-star accommodations, longer, we do more things, a little bit, you know, a little ritzier stuff, and the leaving dinner is kind of out of this world. It's um, on the Royal Yacht Britannia, and uh, that's normally by invitation only. We were able to get our leaving dinner to be held there. So um, if you want to find out more about our trips, which we are calling Pod Abroad, which is a uh, hearkening back to our 2015 first official Pod Abroad with Summer and I went to Scotland, you can go to podabroad.com. That's P-O-D-A-B-R-O-A-D.com and see our announcement video, which has gone everywhere now. <laughs> and our badly, my, I'm not a video editor, just so you know, so I know it's dumpy, but look, we, we got, we put our music in there. We, we talk, it's pretty short. It's like two and a half minutes. We cut it down a lot. So you're welcome. And, uh, that's there. And if you go to that page, you'll see our video, you'll see a flyer slash brochure that we had made. And you will see there will be li- very brief descriptions of the two trips and links to the full itinerary on the uh, operator's website. And um, Julia, our operator is fantastic. And you guys will love Susan, our tour guide, it is going to be they're going to be such special trips. And we're ha- we have so much time between now and then it's not till as we said, May 2018. So there's plenty of time to get the passports, plenty of time to figure out finances. It's just there's so much there's so much time for us to build at to get to know each other, to build a community and get excited together uh, in planning uh, in executing these trips. So are you excited, Sam? I'm getting there. It's a whole year. I, I'm afraid to get too excited. You're right. It's, 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 a, it's a really like, hard to sustain that for for a whole year. But, you know. So until we announced it, the excitement and buildup was coming up to that announcement. And now that it's been announced, the excitement I'm personally experiencing, I think Summer too, by by her punctuation and her texts, because she, she sees our emails a little more quickly than I do, is uh, we get so excited. Every time there's another booking, Summer sees the email, Summer texts me, it's like, Ginger, we got two more. And I was like, oh my God, it's a mother and daughter. Oh my God. So it's so exciting. And um, it just, oh, it just, it just tickles me that that you guys are, um, it makes us so happy every time we see another booking come through because we know with a lot of help, don't get me wrong, we're not on our own. We had a lot of help building these itineraries and um, getting things in place. And now it's kind of a open up, hand it off to you guys and see who will join us. And it's so much fun um, in this period right now, seeing who will join us. So again, that's potabroad.com. And we hope to see you there. So this is a first for us. We have actually a plethora, an an overabundance of sponsors coming out to support our show. So this episode is also brought to you by Bloom That, one of our newest sponsors. Bloom That is an online flower delivery and florist. So think of other companies that you've heard of, seen, that you can order flowers and have them delivered to someone. So when my delivery from Bloom That arrived, it was a beautiful bouquet of yellow tulips, yellow and white tulips. And they were wrapped lovingly in in this beautiful burlap and they came with this glass face and I took them out and I arranged them. And, you know, they, because they were such tight buds, they, they kind of opened up in the next, 
you know, day or three. And they're, they've been so pretty and so fresh uh, for so long. And just for listeners of the Outlander podcast, Blue Matte has a very special offer. Purchase any bouquet that they sell and get a designer vase with your order. Now, this usually costs around $15 when you try to add it to your bouquet elsewhere. And they throw in handmade caramel treats, normally $10. Did you try those? They're so good. Were your salted caramel too? Oh my God, they had like giant chunks of sea salt in them. They were so good. So this alone is a savings of about $25, but you can only get this deal of the glass face and the caramel treats if you go to their page, bloomnet.com slash outlander. And what is right around the corner that generally is a day you send flowers? That's right. It's Mother's Day. Mothers like flowers. And there's plenty of time. There's plenty of time and there's vases and there's treats. So if you get them. Just think about it, That's three treats. That's three presents right there. If you have them delivered to you, you can then hand deliver the, the flowers. Keep the caramel. <laughs> so go to bloomthat.com slash outlander. That's B-L-O-O-M-T-H-A-T dot com slash outlander and find the perfect handcrafted designer flowers. You'll automatically get the free premium designer vase and caramel treats, a $25 value. Again, that's bloomthat.com slash outlander for a premium design bouquet, free vase and treats. Don't wait. This amazing offer won't last and it's only available to our listeners. If you go to bloomthat.com slash outlander, don't make your mom lie and say that she loved your flowers when she doesn't. Use Bloom That, the flower company that never cuts corners. And now on to our read along. We will begin our read-along with chapter 45, entitled Mr. Willoughby's Tale. So the chapter begins, and we learn that they, meaning the boat, the Artemis, are, quote, past the center of the Atlantic gyre, unquote. So this was fascinating. To get to know about gyres, we first must understand something called the Coriolis effect. And this is from uh, NOAA.gov, quote, if the Earth did not rotate and remain stationary, the atmosphere would circulate between poles, or high-pressure areas, and the equator, a low-pressure area, in a simple back-and-forth pattern. But because the Earth rotates, circulating air is deflected. Instead of circulating in a straight pattern, the air deflects toward the right in the northern hemisphere and toward the left in the southern hemisphere, resulting in curved paths. This deflection is called the Coriolis effect. Now we can get to gyres. This comes also from Noah, quote, global winds drag on the water surface, causing it to move and build up in the, in the direction that the wind is blowing. And just as the Coriolis effect deflects winds to the right in the northern hemisphere and left in the southern hemisphere, it also results in the deflection of major surface ocean currents to the right in the northern hemisphere in a clockwise spiral and the left in the southern hemisphere in a counterclockwise spiral. These major spirals of ocean circling currents are called gyres and occur north and south of the equator, unquote. 
Now, there are two Atlantic gyres. There's the north and the south. Now, since they are north of the equator, traveling from uh, the UK, or what is now the UK, traveling from Scotland to Jamaica, they are going through the North Atlantic Gyre because they're above the equator. They're north of the equator. We pr- will provide a link in the show notes of a good illustration of the ocean currents provided by National Geographic. So back on the ship. It was getting warmer. The mood on the ship seemed a bit lighter. The off-duty crew would get together and sing songs, dance, and tell stories. Ironically, or perhaps not, the men, quote, seemed particularly fond of horrible tales of shipwrecked and perils of the sea, unquote. So as they got further from home, their tales turned toward home. The cabin boy Maitland asks Willoughby how he came to be there. And we finally get Willoughby's story. Now, Jamie interprets. Now, I'm going to not, I guess, you, I guess you could say I'm correcting. But um, in the book, Diana writes that Jamie is translating. And actually, he's interpreting. Translation is the written word. Interpretation is the spoken word. Consecutive and simultaneous for interpretation, that's a whole other thing. So interpret is, because he's speaking, right? Willoughby's not writing. So we know by what the action is that he's interpreting. I'm just saying that because there is technically a difference and this is an incorrect usage of it, but I'm not getting on anybody. I just, I noticed it and I don't think most people would notice it. So so you're doing that whole meme with Kermit the Frog sipping on his tea? Oh, that's not, but that's none of my business. <laughs> that's funny. That, that, that'll be a good takeaway from this. Um, okay, so Willoughby was a man of letters. He was born in Peking, the imperial city. Of course, this is all in China. He was found to have skill with composition at an early age and was taken into the imperial household to be trained. He grew in his ability and in prominence, and his poetry came to the attention of the emperor's second wife, who held great power. She asked that he become part of her household. This was a very high honor, but a condition of service is that all servants of the royal wives must be eunuchs. Ouch. What would you do, Sam? If you were a dude, obviously. To choose between my balls and, and a job? I mean, that's what it all comes down to, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think any dude would choose a job over their balls. Well, a lot of people did. It was it was a high honor. It was a low honor. <laughs> uh, not to have your balls docked off. It was a hall, them, a hall. It affected them very lowly in their body. Lisa T. writes, Earlier in the book, Frank and Claire talk about having a calling. Claire, of course, has a calling to be a doctor, a healer. Mr. Willoughby has a calling with words. Both of them have had no choice but to serve their calling. Also, this reminds me of Colum recognizing Claire's ability to heal and keeping her at Castle Leach. Then, later, she is forced to marry Jamie. Mr. Willoughby encounters his own version of this. Quote, It's strange, Mr. Willoughby said, and the air of reflection in his voice was echoed exactly by Jamie's. Quote, But it was my joy of women that second wife saw and loved in my words. Yet by desiring to possess me and my poems, she would have forever destroyed what she admired, unquote. Lisa continues that this reminds her of John's feelings for Jamie. But I'll revisit this later. Oh, we're all going to be revisiting that. But here's, here's a question. I mean, clearly I've never had balls and then lost them. But, and neither has him, has him, has he. But my... I don't think that his he would no longer be able to admire the female form because he was castrated. It would mean no. that he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. 
But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't still be able to appreciate the female form and well, if his or is he saying the is he saying the only thing he loves about women is that he can doink them? No, I think he he's attracted to them, admires them, all that. But I think if you castrate someone, it's not just like you can no longer have kids. It's that you your testosterone producer, your greatest testosterone producer is gone. And you there's a lot of effects of, of low testosterone in men. And um, the sex drive goes. I've, I mean, I've, I understand that it, it just a lot of things are changed. And so when that was gone, if it had been taken from him, it he would have lost. It could have very well changed him emotionally, not just because, oh, they're gone, but like literally on a chemical level. And what his talent, what his inborn talent is connected to his love of women, even if he's not doinking them, but he, but because he can feel a certain way about women, but if his chemistry is all off, literally, he may not feel that way anymore. And it may affect his writing. The ability for something is there, but meaning he's the, na- the nascent ability. It's still in his brain and his genes, whatever, but may not be able to be expressed if he is chemically different. That's my guess. Plus it's his balls. So he's just like, um, no thanks. So he ran. He had to. It was a dishonorable thing to reject such an offer, but he had fallen in love with a woman. Oops, not a woman, just women in general. He loved women and he wrote all of his poetry to women. Lisa T writes, Claire shows her resilience by marrying Jamie, but Mr. Willoughby is less fortunate. Mr. Willoughby is torn between love and honor. As Jamie is interpreting the text of one of these poems, Fergus covers Marsali's ears. <laughs> it was so funny. At different points, he was like uh, horrified, hootified, and just trying to, his continued trying to protect Marsali is just, is hilarious. Well, I mean, we find out later it's kind of with good reason. Oh, yeah, she's, uh, she's got plans. So the sailors liked the poetry, though. Quote, No wonder the wee fellow was an esteemed poet, Rayburn said with approval. It's better heathen, but I like it. Unquote. So Willoughby chose to flee on the Night of Lanterns. Lisa T. writes, This reminds me of Jamie going to France as an exile. This was a festival where lots of people were in the street, and so it would be easier to leave without being noticed. He donned the clothing of a pilgrim and took off. He had nearly been caught the next day. He'd forgotten to cut his nails, which were long nails were a sign that as a Mandarin, and again, this was his words through Diana. This is not Ginger saying he's a Mandarin. As a Mandarin, uh, so a person of a certain class or level in society, he was not obliged to work with his hands. He shortened his nails all but one, which had he had to tear out since it had a golden dazi inlaid in it. So my tones, my Mandarin is a tonal, tonal language. My tones, I promise you, are all off because I do not speak Mandarin. But it was a dazi da, da or dazi. And as this little thing was inlaid into one of his nails and he had to pull the nail out in order to save himself from being detected with this in. So he stole a peasant's clothes and he, le- he left the nail. I mean, that's kind of nasty, but I get it because he left the gold. He left the nail with the gold as payment and he travels th- to the coast. On the way, he steals food where he can and he ran into a group of traveling apothecaries who in exchange for his drawing banners and labels, labels for their bottles of medicine, let him accompany them. 
at the coast, he couldn't pass as a seaman. So he chose the ship with the most barbarous looking sailors, figuring that would take him the furthest away. And that's how he ended up in Edinburgh. That's quite a story. Well, I think we were all wondering. So it was only a matter of time before somebody told us the story. Well, yeah, I think we had to find out at some point, hopefully. So because he couldn't give up his manhood, he lost everything. Mr. Willoughby had dishonored his parents. No one honors the tombs of his ancestors any longer. We get a lot of insight into Willoughby's true feelings of the Europeans as well. Now carry this with you for the rest of the book. Quote, All order, beauty is lost. I am come to a place where the golden words of my poems are taken for the clucking of hens and many brushstrokes for their scratchings. I am taken as less than the meanest beggar who swallows serpents for entertainment of the crowds, allowing passers-by to draw the serpent from my mouth by its tail for the tiny payment that they will let me live another day. Unquote. And... Quote, I am come to a country of women coarse and rank as bears. They are creatures of no grace, no learning, ignorant, bad smelling, their bodies gross with sprouting hair like dogs. And these, these disdain me as a yellow worm, so that even the lowest whores will not lie with me. For the love of woman, I am come to a place where no woman is worthy of love. Unquote. So keep that, his passion and his words in mind. They may or may not come back. I mean, I think this is the first, <laughs> the first inkling that we get of, of a little bit of bitterness in um, Mr. Willoughby. That, because he's, he's kind of, you know, everyone jokes, not jokes. They don't joke. They're upset about it, about the, how he comes off as a caricature at mm -hmm. times. And... And he's, he, I think that his relationship with Jamie is so complicated. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll learn more about that later. But it's such a complicated relationship because he, as he just states, you know, he's surrounded by all these people who, you know, aren't worthy. He, you know, he's used to cultured people and people that, you know, were from royal families and is a man of, you know, this, not the spoken word, but, you know, he was a man of letters. So he was a writer. He was, you know, a creative artist. And he's, to save his balls, he popped on a boat and went off into anywhere. He didn't even know where he was going. And he ended up here, um, surrounded by people who, you know, like you said, disrespect him, don't understand him. They can't see the beauty of what he does. The women spurn him. You know, everyone calls him horrible things. And, you know, and I think that that also probably is part of what drives him to drink because <laughs> what else yeah. is he going to do? So he's such a, I don't know. It's like, it's chapters like this that remind me that there is so much more to this character that when people just want to dismiss him and say, I hope they don't mm -hmm. keep him. It's chapters like this that make me think, oh, I do hope they keep him and they did keep him. So I, I hope they keep this. I, th I don't think they can keep his character and not have this, but yeah, they have to have an know. explanation of how the heck he came into this, into right. the scene. Because can we all, I mean, we can all admit that it was pretty random the first time he showed up, right? Yeah. It, it felt kind of random. Okay. So as the crowd dispersed, Fergus warns Mr. Willoughby that any other remarks about European women would make Fergus strangle him with his own cue. And then we get one of the quintessentially Diana moments. 
Quote, it was as we were turning to leave that the Chinaman reached down between his legs. Completely without lewdness, he cupped his testicles so that the rounded mass pressed against the silk. He rolled them slowly in the palm of his hand, staring at the bulge in deep meditation. Sometime, he said, as though to himself, I think not worth it. Unquote. Awkward. Lisa T. writes, This is different than Claire's experience. Rankness notwithstanding, she came to a place where man is very worthy of love because she opened her heart to it. And Lisa says that Willoughby's final words remind me of the sacrifices Jamie made to save Claire from Blackjack. The difference being that Jamie always felt that it was worth it. In Mr. Willoughby's story, we see echoes of Claire's and Jamie's stories. We see how sad and tortured their lives might have been had their choices been different. Eileen P. writes, When I was first introduced to Mr. Willoughby in Voyager, I was reminded of the Chinese stereotypes in the 1967 movie Thoroughly Modern Millie. I was curious if people found the portrayal of the Chinese characters in that movie and the subsequent Broadway musical offensive. Current audiences, yes. However, a 1967 review of the film in the New York Times said nothing about the stereotypes. And she provided a link, which we'll share. Now, I mention this because Claire is from 1968 and would have viewed Mr. Willoughby from the same perspective as the writers of Thoroughly Modern Millie, which was based on the 1956 British musical Chrysanthemum. Interesting that Chrysanthemum lists Chinaman as a character, which is also how Claire refers to Mr. Willoughby. When we first meet him, we are seeing through him through Claire's 1968 eyes. In chapter 45, we get to hear Mr. Willoughby's tale of how he ended up in Edinburgh. In hearing this tale, Mr. Willoughby becomes a three-dimensional character and no longer the stereotypical Chinaman. Mr. Willoughby did not go to Scotland seeking adventure or fortune or to fulfill a dream. He was fleeing to safety to ensure he wasn't horribly mutilated. He is a sex-driven character whose job requirement would have destroyed his identity and ruined his ability to create his erotic poems. To save himself, he fled. However, he has had difficulty adapting to his new home and resents having to be there. When Claire traveled through the stones, she was able to adapt to life in 18th century Scotland and Paris. When Jamie lived in the cave or Ardsmuir or Hellwater, he adapted to each place. Mr. Willoughby is having trouble adapting not only because of the language barrier and how he is treated, but because of his own prejudices and his own ability to adapt and actually wanting to adapt. Finally, two characters that have to meet, Mr. Willoughby and Harry Quarry. If you haven't read the Lord John Gray books, you really must. In the books, we learn that Harry Quarry, Lord John's predecessor at Ardsmuir, loves to write erotic poetry. I think Mr. Willoughby and Harry should become a writing team. They would be a hit. That was chapter 45. Moving right along to a slightly longer chapter entitled... Uh, well, chapter 46, and entitled, <laughs> We Meet a Porpoise, on purpose. Lisa T. starts us out <laughs> with, the chapter opens with Claire, quote, I had been conscious for some time that Marsali was trying to get up the nerve to speak to me. I had thought she would sooner or later. Whatever her feelings toward me, I was the only other woman aboard. I did my best to help, smiling kindly and saying, good morning, but the first move would have to be hers, unquote. Lisa, Lisa continues, this reminds me a bit of a chess game. That, of course, reminds me of how Lord John used chess as a means to get Jamie to open up to him. So, Miss Marsali wants to chat up Claire about birth control, but has a hard time. 
Perhaps this isn't a good way to start it, though. Quote, Da says you're a wise woman, and I think you may be an honest woman, ev- even if you are a whore. So you maybe tell me. Unquote. <laughs> That's the best way to lead, Marcelli. Always lead with the whore accusation. She says that she'd like babies one day. She says, quote, I want to like it when we get to the prick part, unquote. <laughs> and Marsali is not concerned with Fergus's background, of course, though we do know that Leary is from a number of things we've heard. Lisa T quotes Marsali for us. And I said, why not? For there's nothing so awful about being French. Not everybody could be Scots. And I didn't think his hand mattered a bit either. After all, there was Mr. Murray with his wooden leg and mother liked him well enough. But then he said, no, it was none of those things. And then he told me about Paris. I mean, and being born in a brothel and being a pickpocket until he met Da. Unquote. Marsali cracks me up, Lisa says, with her bluntness. Not everybody could be Scots. Unquote. I wouldn't mind seeing her tell this to Larry's face either. <laughs> so... Marsali is concerned that she'll not like the brick part. Her mother, Leary, told her that Fergus would do, quote, terrible things to me because of living with some whores and having one for a mother, unquote. Marsali had seen how Jamie was kind to her mother, though, and any little sign of affection he showed her, she shrank away. Leary was clearly afraid. Uh, Marsali thought that they, it must be something he was doing to her in private when they were alone in bed or something. And then she thought it was because, oh, my mom has had children and she knew it would be terrible and was afraid of having more. So she was afraid of being with Jamie. So she was trying to connect all of this because her mom was not very communicative. Eileen P writes, there are references first from Jamie, now from Marsali regarding Leary not liking sex. I can only conclude that she must have been abused either by her first or second husband. By the time she was married to Jamie, she feared intimacy. Joe B writes, Marsali breaks the ice between her and Claire. It begins the mother-daughter-like relationship between them as she asks about contraception. It also shows more of Leary as a traditionally valued-ish mother. She has given her girls a basic and uninspiring education about sex, and now Marsali, having observed Jamie with both Leary and Claire, has seen the difference. It seems Leary hasn't had positive experiences in the bedroom, from abuse, postnatal depression, being unable to find or receive love, or a combination of them. So then Marsali juxtaposes that with how she'd seen Claire with Jamie. It's the complete opposite. When she'd walked in on them, ha ha ha, in the cookie jar moment, Claire had been enjoying it. And she says so here. And since she doesn't have any children, meaning Claire, Marsali is determined also not to have children, at least for a while yet, because she wants to enjoy her time with Fergus a bit first. So Marsali is connecting not having kids to enjoying time with your husband in the prick part. Claire disabuses her of the notion that she has no children by saying, um, yeah, excuse me, I have two of them. And yes, they were both Jamie's. <laughs> but Claire seriously, that- almost everything she says to Marsali starts with, but that's none of your business. Oh, yeah. A lot of it does. So she needs to be sipping a cup of tea. This is the whole theory of the theme of the whole episode. (laughs) Oh, pretty much. Yeah. But that's none of my business. Claire says that childbirth may make a difference for some women, but not all. She shows Marsali the sea sponge and tansy oil and gives her instructions on how to use it as a form of contraception. Eileen P. writes, when Claire gives Marsali a sponge for birth control, I thought two things. One, Who knew the sponge method has been around for centuries? Mm -hmm. And two, 
Elaine in Seinfeld asking, quote, is he sponge worthy? Unquote. <laughs> They're interrupted by a shout from above. Something is going down up there. Going down up there. Claire says that they'll finish the conversation later. And above, she sees there is a large ship approaching. There was only a warning shot, so the ship meant no ill. At this moment, at least, it just meant to board them. It was a British man of war. Now, Jamie urges her to go back below, but she's like, um, no. So this wasn't the best news, Diana writes. While Britain and France weren't currently at war, they also weren't besties. Captain Rains says that they likely want to take some crew. They are allowed to take or press any of the crew who look to be British, which is like half the crew. Can you <laughs> imagine that some- happening nowadays? Uh-huh. Good Lord. Girl, I don't even want to start about nowadays because nowadays is different like, than six months ago. I know. I know. But let's just think <laughs> about it. Like if there's if there's a bus driving down the street, like an RV, an RV with a family in it or an RV with whatever, and another RV pulls up beside them on at a rest stop and is like, hey, do you got uh, anybody over there who knows how to play Pinochle? Well, yeah. Okay. Well, we're taking them on our tour because we need somebody who can play Pinochle. Uh, we'll give them back to you at the next stop. I mean, it's like, I mean, granted, needing a surgeon is a little more, you know, dire of a need than pinnacle. But it's just the fact that they could summarily, legally, just walk onto somebody else's ship and being like, oh, you're from my country. I can take you. Yeah, it's crazy. If she takes the people, meaning the ship, they will serve aboard the other ship. Maybe to be released once they reach port. Maybe not. It's sort of a government-sanctioned naval kidnapping. Innes and Fergus, at least, are safe. <laughs> uh, they'll, they won't be wanted. They won't be pressed into anything. Um, and if any of them are taken, at least Innes and Fergus will be behind and they will be able to continue the search for young Ian. If Jamie and Claire are taken, he tells her to go to Jared's place at Sugar Bay and to look for young Ian there. And he will meet her there. He tells her that he'll be fine, but it's best for them to be Malcolm for the moment. As the young man, acting Captain Thomas Leonard of the Porpoise, boards the ship, he says they need a, they need a surgeon. The Porpoise has suffered an outbreak of some kind for four, four weeks ago. Captain, surgeon, and lots of the crew, all dead. Of course, Claire jumps up. I'm the Artemis' surgeon. What symptoms are your men ha- do you men have? Now, this is Claire the doctor, Claire the healer, obviously. We, we, we expect nothing less. But this is also Claire who jumps up and opens her mouth. This is the Claire who runs off and, in the book at least, or it, either way, it doesn't now. No one's told her an order here, but still, this is the Claire who doesn't think before she opens her mouth. That's all I'm saying. Now, will she still have gone? Very possibly. But this is Claire that, you know, whatever. There's a lot of, we talk, we can write a dissertation about this, but this is quintessential Claire. Well, he said the magic word. Doctor? Yeah. Healer? You got a doctor? I know. I know. I know. It's, it's I, like, I understand. It's like her version of lady porn. Oh, Lord. Yeah, well. She's like, so she seems that's her, that's her like kryptonite. Like she's like, Oh, you have something with that, that I can't catch that I can fix. I'm bored as a hell on this boat and I'm not getting any for my husband. I would love to come on board and check it out. Well, you'd think the discussion of possible pressing people may have scared her, but it didn't. So she really, that's what I'm saying. I, I she didn't think too quickly. She didn't think too quickly. Or long enough, I should say. So she says that she'd have to see the people to be able to confirm a diagnosis. And Jamie says, uh, sorry, yeah, there's no way she can help you. Sorry. She's not leaving the ship. And uh, they speak privately. And she says, look, it's not plague. It's something that, I can't, that she can't catch, likely. She's been vaccinated against most things. 
and he's still not convinced. Struggling, she finally utters words that will affect the rest of their relationship together, even to book eight. Quote, I took an oath, I said, when I became a physician, unquote. Both eyebrows shot up. An oath? He echoed. What sort of oath? Now she recites upon this, the Hippocratic Oath. It really is, a, if you have not read it, it's actually kind of beautiful. I mean, it's very pagan, he's right, but it's, it's, very, it's very beautiful. And we'll include a link to this as well. Now Jamie's response is, quote, I see. Well, the first part sounds a wee bit pagan, but I like the part about how you will not seduce anyone, unquote. <laughs> she explains to Jamie that it doesn't matter who is injured or ill, whether it be enemy or friend. And he understands. He's taken oaths and knows their meaning and their importance. And he wouldn't have her be forsworn. And the reason I mentioned future books and how this kind of changes the relationship is that even though since book one, Jamie has vowed never to lay a hand on her again, and he hasn't, uh, since the, the beating, the belt whipping beating, he still is a, an 18th century male. And he's, for the time, he's obviously quite ahead of his time, if you will, but at least in, in the way he treats women and the way he treats um, Claire. But he also wants to protect her because he knows there, there are true dangers out there. But in this, in this ex- little uh, ex- um, experience, in this little scene we just read about, and in future books, because it, I would say minimum of once a book. She's like, I got to go. And he's like, no, you don't. She's like, my oath. He's like, oh, right. See ya. This comes up, right? Some more than once. I mean, this, I can remember through, Mo- through Moby. It does. But I also want to point out that Jamie doesn't treat all women differently. He treats Claire differently than all women. Like he treats all of the the 17th century women all kind of, I mean, he's still, he's more enlightened than your, your mill 18th century dude. However, Claire does get a lot of carte blanche for being from the future. (laughs) So he does treat her significantly differently than ladies from that time period. That's true. But he, even if he treats like a whore, like a whore, meaning, you know, he, he, even if he treats Claire better than others and people of their quote unquote correctly for their station, whatever, he mm-hmm. still like doesn't, wouldn't beat whores. He still wouldn't, you know, he would fight for something he believed in, you know, but that's, I mean, you'd have men of, I think, any century to do that. But um, what if he in believed, general, what if he, he believed he, he treats whores better? Joe B writes the Royal Navy could legally force any British man to serve on their ships with little recourse from those pressed Jamie go Jamie go there Jamie will go with his men because they are his responsibility it is this concept that allows Claire to convince Jamie to let her go help on the porpoise her Hippocratic oath is as strong for her as any Jamie has ever taken so she boards the porpoise, though not very gracefully. I think she lands kind of on her ass. <laughs> she lands like in a pile of herself. Um, and she's taken to the ill. And it would, it'd be stanky. Vomit and diarrhea sticking to the deck. And she's all stepping in it. Just disgusting. So she does her examination. And her best diagnosis was typhoid. She lays out the treatment and the prevention strategy. Captain Leonard tells her to go to town. She says she can't. She can get him started, but she'll have to go back to the, her husband on the Artemis. With reluctance, she agrees to stay to get them started herself. She yells at Jamie that she needs two hours. 
he's not happy. And Claire is just getting started when she feels the ship move. She confronts Captain Leonard. He says, uh, sorry, we got to get to Jamaica, yo. She orders him to take her back, and he says that he must take her with him. He said, he told Jamie the Navy will provide her accommodation on Jamaica until the Artemis arrives. So Claire is kidnapped. Leonard tells her what he told Jamie. The Artemis flies under a French flag, but half of her crew is English. He could have pressed them all into her service. And no, of course Jamie didn't agree to this. She may be their only chance. He says he must take it. She starts giving orders, and someone named Tompkins apparently knows, quote, the big one with the red hair, unquote. Claire overhears this, and her ears perk up. So she's knowing something is, something is not right about something. So Leonard is telling her, Captain Leonard, that the items is telling her the items they have, including milk goats and introducing her to the people. And she's thinking to herself, though, about this Tom, about what Tompkins said. She's worried about someone being able to identify Jamie. Now, when their food supplies are listed and then she's told they can't use it, she is told that they are for the use of the VIP passenger. It's the new governor for the island of Jamaica. She makes herself at home on the ship. That is to say, gets the lay of the land and lays out her plans. Quarantine was the most important thing. She was also on a mission to locate the source of the illness. Her assistant, one Elias Pound, had been at sea since the age of seven. He shows her the instrument the dead surgeon had left behind. She gets then started on the cleaning of the decks and the boiling of water, and she makes a long mental list of all the things she must do. She then goes to Mrs. Johansson of the Milk Goats. Eileen P., writes once on board claire begins her work the porpoise begins to move incensed she goes to the captain who tells her that in essence she has been bartered captain leonard has agreed to not press the available crew from the artemis if claire stays on board she will be safely delivered and accommodated by the navy in, J in jamaica where the artemis can collect her without much choice now doc dr randall goes to work and claire fraser goes to the background where worry and fear exist but can't be dwelt upon the only thing she can do are the best practices of uh, the basic practices of hygiene, fresh air, and isolation. Claire now, in turn, presses the crew of the porpoise, organizing and taking charge of the ship to provide the care she needs to provide, including purloining the supplies of the incoming governor of Jamaica. And of course, someone has recognized Jamie. Women and children provided many roles in the Navy, often doing the dangerous and messy jobs men didn't do. And that's 46. What an awful chapter. I know, huh? Gross. I'm like, it's full of diarrhea. sickness, disease, and treachery. And, and diarrhea. Yeah. You know. And treacherous I, diarrhea. I was going to make the treachery the number three, like the worst thing. You know, you have comedy of threes where everything is more important yeah. than threes. And you just wouldn't stop saying diarrhea. I know. Well, that, as, uh, as Ginger just said, <laughs> was the diarrhea chapter, chapter 46. <laughs> Join us as things get worse on the diarrhea boat, and it becomes chapter 47, <laughs> the plague ship. Eileen P. writes, the chapter title, Plague Ship, reminds me of 20 years ago in Havre, France, when Claire diagnosed smallpox, resulting in the Comte's ship being destroyed. Is this somehow payback? Now Claire has to stop a possible typhoid epidemic. I almost said academic. <laughs> what? Academic? No, I almost said academic. I meant... She's about to be schooled in typhoid. Martina P. 
Right. <laughs> Sorry. Claire tends to the typhoid victims in a compelling description of a woman with love for her work. She is running the show, barking out orders and making the crew clean the entire ship. She is displaying absolute proficiency, however, is getting increasingly frustrated with her inability to locate the source of the contagion. It's been two days, and she still hasn't had a chance to speak with Captain Leonard. Though she encountered some resistance, her measures were garnering results. But she had failed to find the source, as Martina said. She had half the ship's alcohol distilled into pure alcohol, and the crew didn't like this. Mrs. Johansson was a blessing, however. Annika Johansson was her left hand, and Elias was her right. She helped her with the boiling of the milk and the making of the little rolls or whatever, removing the weevils from the dough, the bread, and just helping uh, give it to the, the ill men as well. So someone drank the pure alcohol. Someone. Few, few people, Many people Few did. people did. But the semen will drink just about anything. Stop it. Out. I'm still not okay with that. Telling them it will kill them won't prevent them from drinking it and kill them. It did. Now, Claire had had enough. She was going to force a meeting with Leonard. She goes to his office, but he's asleep. As she tries to leave, she knocks over a book, and this wakes him up. She says she needs more alcohol, and he is called by the bell to take a position on deck. He says he'll follow up with a purser. And as he leaves, she asks how old he is, and he says he's 19. Now, if you remember, this is Brianna's age. Martina P. writes... We learn that Captain Leonard is considerably younger than she anticipated. He is only 19, the same age as Bree. I think Claire is starting to forgive the young captain for the kidnapping because she realizes he was forced to the act out of utter despair. Claire had caught the captain's slip. When he first woke up, he had called her, began to call her Mrs. Frick before he corrected himself. In the captain on her own, she looks at the logbook and reads... The name Fraser. So he knew who they were. Right, but how dumb is she to, to need to read it in the logbook? He almost calls her Mrs. Fraser That's like four times. <laughs> and uh, she locks herself into the room and begins to read. Now, he'd written her down as C. Malcolm. He noted that the Artemis had as its supercargo one James Fraser, a.k.a. Jamie Roy, a.k.a. Alexander Malcolm and that he was a seditionist and a smuggler. So information had come from Tompkins after they left the Artemis, and he noted that Fraser might be arrested once they all arrived in Jamaica. So again, who the F is Tompkins? Didn't they mention him, like, early in the chapter? Uh, yeah, that was the one she, she overheard saying something about uh, Fraser. Yeah. So she also finds out that the notation, one of the notations she's read in the logbook DD meant discharged dead. And that the only, that was the only way most of the men would be leaving his majesty's Navy. The only thing that Claire knows about Tompkins was his voice. So she asks Elias about him and she finds out that he is one of the forecastle hands. He'd come aboard in Edinburgh, ding, ding, ding. And he'd been pressed. He protested that he'd worked for Sir Percival Turner of Customs and, you know, he he was too important to basically be taken. He couldn't be taken. And so this, of course, as soon as we hear Sir Percival, this explains a lot. So Claire goes off to attempt to sleep, but she can't. Thoughts of Tompkins dance in her head. He had known Jamie on sight. Now, it turns out that Tompkins comes to her. 
There'd been an accident and he was injured and he was brought to her. It was the one-eyed seaman young Ian <laughs> had thought he'd... Summer. It's always bad. It was the one-eyed seaman young Ian had thought he'd killed in the print shop. He was a there sailor. Was yes. A one-eyed sailor. There was recognition in his face. There was no way he would confide in her. So she used the dead surgeon's bone saw to encourage a chat with him. Oh, my God. This whole scene just got funnier and funnier. I know. Because then she, sta- she starts, like, trying to mend him by sewing the wound shut. And he's like, I'll talk. I'll tell you anything you want. Just please stop. And she's like, uh, no, I'm trying to fix you. This is going to yeah, keep that, happening. That funny. So he revealed that he was an agent of Sir Percival's. He went around to ports to take back gossip and look out for illegal activity. So the small potatoes, the people who, like the small-time pris- uh, prisoners, small-time criminals, were actually tried and convicted. Bigger fish, however, like Jamie, were all up to Sir Percival how to handle them. They were allowed to pay, some were allowed to pay large fines and continue to function in their capacity. But Sir Percival was ambitious, and he wanted a peerage. It would take a lot of money and something huge that showed service to the crown. For example, arresting a, sh- a seditionist, mm. a former traitor. Now, they hadn't known who the big fish was until one of Jamie's associates had given him up. The only thing he knew was that it was an Englishman. He didn't know who. So Percival had given Jamie the warning of the ambush to lessen the chance that he thought him involved. And it was the friend of the hanged smuggler who'd hanged the smuggler. What was the point? There was this huge opportunity to arrest Jamie and make all of Sir Percival's dreams come true, but there was no evidence. Martina P. writes, It is nice to see some of the excisemen and customs officers' confusion resolved. Claire is about to treat Mr. Tompkins' leg, and she blackmails him into revealing information by holding a bone saw above his knee. We learn from him that Sir Percival Turner had actually turned on Jamie and has set him up, which means that there was, in fact, no traitor among Jamie's crew. I wonder why Claire did not take the logbook, which contained incriminating information about Jamie, and toss it overboard. Captain Leonard certainly has more than enough matters to deal with. But then again, we would have one less adventure story to read about. And that was chapter 47 entitled Plague Ship. Join us next time when we discuss chapters 48, Moment of Grace, and chapter 49 entitled Land Ho... I mean, land ho! Thank you as always so much for listening. We look forward to our next episode. Thank you to our generous partner, Zencaster, who offers high-fidelity podcasting. Check out Zencaster and use coupon code OUTLANDER20, OUTLANDER20, for 20% off three months or 20% off for a year. Connect with us. Visit our website at outlanderpod.com. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash outlanderpod. We'd love for you to join our Facebook community at outlanderpod.com slash group. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at outlanderpod. I dreamt it last night. That my young love